Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Sophie Teuber Arp at the Museum of Modern Art, New York. My guest this week is one of the show's four co curators, Anne Umland. Sophie Teuber Arp, Living Abstraction, surveys Teuber Arp's pioneering interests in data and abstraction across over 300 works. They include textiles, beadwork, polychrome marionettes, they're pretty cool, architectural and interior designs, stained glass windows, works on paper, paintings, and relief sculptures. The exhibition's on view at MoMA through March 12th. The outstanding and thorough exhibition catalog was published by MoMA and the Kunstmuseum Basel. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for around $57 to $75. On the second segment, remembering Jonathan Brown, who died on January 17th at the age of 82. But first, Anne Umland, after the break. The scene changes. Sculpture from the collection of Sheldon Museum of Art presents a broad range of artistic approaches to sculpture, from exploration of the physical potential of material and form to use of the medium's capacity to convey concepts and narratives. The exhibition opens with sculpture deeply rooted in modernism, seminal works by Louise Bourgeois, Alexander Calder, and Izumu Noguchi, each a historical linchpin of the medium's evolution in the 1950s. Moving forward in time and practice, a second selection of works highlights modernism's concern with the distillation of primary form and pure materiality, as seen in works by Anne Truitt and John McCracken. To these, the museum adds simplified forms imbued with implicit narratives, works by Martin Purrier and Ursula von Reidingsvart. The exhibition follows sculpture's progression into a medium that examines contemporary issues and tells complex stories, with works by Leonardo Drew, Nicholas Gallinin, and Amanda Ross Ho. The Scene Changes is on view at Sheldon Museum of Art from February 2nd through July 2nd, 2022. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents a survey of contemporary art from around the state. The exhibition, Reckoning and Resilience, North Carolina Art Now, brings together 30 emerging and established artists. This group survey, featuring approximately 100 works, presents an expansive view of contemporary art in North Carolina, both in terms of regional geography and artistic approaches. The show includes drawing, painting, sculpture, photography, ceramics, textiles, performance, and experimental video. The artists explore themes surrounding historical and current events, identity, loss, remembrance, trauma, and healing. All works are on view at the Nasher for the first time. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Anne Umland, welcome back to the Modern Art News Podcast. Thank you, Tyler. It's such a pleasure to be here. How is your 2021 effort, he says, giving the year in which the show opened, not the year in which the show was planned for, <laughs> to present Sophie Teuber Arp's achievement different from the effort her husband, Jean, made five years after her death? And what does that tell us about how our understanding of an artist's achievement and breadth has changed in those 70 years. I guess you could say that we are aiming to put all the pieces together of this sort of incredibly varied and variegated career of hers in a way that when the catalog resume was published, as I said, in 48, a lot was left out. And in particular, what was left out were the applied arts and the architecture and design aspects of her practice. 
and her inarguable talents as an abstract painter and sculptor were foregrounded. And I think it's interesting that I'm not sure that ARPS omitting a number of works from her applied arts practice. I think a lot of times things like that weren't as well documented. There weren't enough photographs. He felt that it could complete as possible. So, you know, I don't want to read too much into the way that it was skewed toward the fine arts aspect of her career. There could be very pragmatic reasons for it. But anyway, it left this remarkable opportunity for us in the 21st century to go back and say, look at this, like what is so amazing about Sophie Toiberarp is this cross-pollinating approach to abstraction. And artists today don't work within media boundaries or hierarchies or limit themselves to one creative role or another. And so when you put it all together like this, from textiles and embroideries and beaded bags to stained glass windows and architectural plans to easel paintings to line drawings, right, It's it just is an incredibly sort of open-ended, inclusive way of thinking about what modern art and what the origins of modern art and of abstraction could be. And so, yes, back to circling way back to your question, that that's what's that's what's different. We have focused on paintings and sculptures and everything else that she made to situate those works in context. We are going to circle back to some of those things, because I think if we circled back to all of them, we'd be here in two days. Because, I mean, there's just, uh, you know, just to give listeners an idea, across the three venues, there are around 400 objects in the show. Not every venue has, has every object for all kinds of good reasons. You know, one overall thought is that one might argue that Teuber Arp has a consistent interest in a certain geometry or geometries, or at least in, in geometric abstraction, across her entire oeuvre, regardless of time or medium, or end result of a work, if you will, bad phrase. Where does her interest in geometries and geometric abstraction come from? Yes, well, I suppose the short answer to that is that Teuber Arp trained as a textile artist. She grew up in the St. Gallen region of Switzerland, which is also renowned for its textile production. She studied at progressive art schools in Hamburg and in Munich that taught that the fine and applied arts were closely allied. But she begins as a textile designer and as an applied artist. And I think that her interest in geometric form of abstraction is directly linked to her insight that the basic horizontal and vertical coordinates of your canvas mesh embroidery support or fabric weave right, could provide the language for a radical new non-objective form of design and composition. And she takes this insight and you watch her translate those coordinates of the textile grid across from early on just a remarkable variety of materials and surfaces from colored pencil drawings to needlepoint embroideries to beaded bags and notebook covers to freeform gouaches with tessellated colorful squares. And as you say, that interest in a geometric abstraction is one that carries through virtually to the end of her career. 
And even when she's working with a vast variety of materials or across a wide variety of disciplines, sort of her approaches to form and composition remain a constant. And I think that thinking about her in the context of Zurich and then of the Zurich Dada movement in the years during and immediately after World War One offer another sort of insight or lens through which to look at her interests in geometric abstraction, which has to do with, I think there was a real interest among the, the Dadaists in Zurich in particular in, in this notion of a tabula rasa, right, of a clean slate in the face of the devastation of World War One. They set out to question everything from political to social to cultural structures and to start over. And one way of starting over, of course, is to pare things down, whether it's language, like their sound poems that were comprised of syllables, not in any particular logical configuration, or elementary geometric building blocks for creating a new form of art. And so when Teuber Arp is in that milieu, I think it helps her, too, to see the potential of her textile grid in a new and different and incredibly, you know, rich and rewarding way. I want to be extra clear. Obviously, colored pencil on paper is the artist drawing with colored pencil on paper. When Teuber Arp is making works that are, you know, 20 inches square and wool on canvas or silk works... Is she working on a loom? Is she making them by hand? Is she making textile designs that she is then, you know, shipping out as it were? I think all of the above. I mean, she, when she's younger and not so successful, she definitely makes things by hand. And I think the majority of the purely abstract, gridded, vertical, horizontal compositions are embroidered. You know, they are hand stitched on a canvas mesh needlepoint is just about the simplest type of embroidery you can do. It's one diagonal stitch looped through the canvas mesh over and over and over again. As she becomes more successful, she has others execute her compositions some of the time. It's a technique that she's well versed in and can carry out herself, but she's also a, a, a designer and so is creating patterns and compositions that in principle others could execute. It does make sense because it seems like within that practice, there is a kind of a wink. So her interest in geometric abstraction and her interest in textile design could all be a wink at the X and Y axes of a loom. But by hand making work, it seems like she's nodding at and winking at that modernist mechanical thing all at the same time. All of the above. Right. I think what's a a great artist without a sort of a plurality of interpretations to bring to their work. And she does have a loom. And for some of the larger pieces, sure, they are woven on a loom. But these early needlepoint embroideries are sort of wonderfully simple right there. The simplicity of their making echoes the simplicity of their formal vocabulary. Even as the compositions are sometimes extremely complicated. Yes, well, those that's I should I should do a wink and say the seemingly simple language that she's using, because look at any one of these early abstractions composed of nothing but verticals and squares, really, but nothing repeats. 
you know, nothing, the rhythm set up or in the more colorful works, the colors are the relationships and juxtapositions are endlessly varied. And to get the sort of dynamism that she gets out of something as simple as a basic gridded layout is incredibly sophisticated in terms of the compositional strategies. One of the key moments and elements of Teuber Arp's practice is a project slash event slash performance called King Stag. What was, at least in the in the Teuber Arp context, what was King Stag and what did she do with it or for it? So King Stag was the title of a puppet play for which Sophie Teuber Arp designed the marionettes in, and it was first performed in 1918. And she created 17 different original marionettes for this puppet play, King Stag. And I am just so thrilled to say that we have brought together all 17 original puppets in a couple of props. And they're being shown in the United States together for the very first time. And these puppets, there's so many different ways to plunge into them and their story. I suppose one way of beginning is simply to say that the play itself was a 20th century adaptation of an 18th century Commedia dell'arte play. And the way that it was updated was to turn its narrative basically into a parody of psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic debates of the time. And so two of the key characters, one is named Freud Analyticus, He's sort of this pink, wormy-like figure with netted body made up from these spool-like parts. And then his counterpart in the play is a character called Dr. Oedipus Complex. And that she makes these really, first of all, they're remarkable aesthetically, the puppets. Their bodies are built from the same elementary geometric shapes in three dimensions, as you can see in a number of her two-dimensional compositions. And unlike any other puppets up until that point, all the little links and joints that connect them together are revealed. So previously, puppets were intended to be naturalistic, to be plausible, to make you think you were seeing the real thing. And with Sophie Teuber Arp's puppets, you were always aware that you were seeing human figures reimagined as segmented modular geometric components. She's using a technique called wood turning or turned wood to make the various parts. So they're not hand carved. They're, the shapes are created on a, a lathe. It's a technique that prior to then was more frequently used for things like making nutcrackers or children's toys, not for making puppets. And looking at the characters, each puppet is just amazing in its individualization. If you get up close to their faces, you can see how very carefully she detailed them. Our, a couple of our conservators have called attention to how you can even see in some places the pencil lines for their features that she then meticulously filled in. The colors, color is always key with Sophie Teuber Arp. And in the puppet play, it plays a, a role in connecting figures who have something to do with each other. So King Duramo, who is searching for his true love, has gold pupils in his eyes. And uh, Angela, 
who ultimately proves to be his true love, has gold pupils in her eyes too. Or Freud Analyticus is this kind of pinky, pinky color and his little alter ego in the play is a bird and that, that bird too is pink. And I think the whole thing, as you were saying, is sort of a spoof or a send up of then contemporary psychoanalytic debates. And it is in keeping with the Dadaists and the Zurich Dadaists interests in sort of pre-cultural, irrational forms of expression, right? And primal drives and things that you cannot control. And I think it's funny that there's a character, Freud Analyticus, pointing to Sigmund Freud, and then Freud's great contemporary was Carl Jung, and who Sophie Teuber Arp and her sister both knew, who lived in who lived in Zurich at the time that they were living there. And Jung and Freud famously had a falling out in 1912 over Freud's theory of the Oedipus complex. So that you have a character named not only Freud Analyticus, but Dr. Oedipus complex in the same play. Again, is this sort of funny, sly, insider, outsider, humorous aside to these psychoanalytical debates that were raging at the time. We'll have, we'll have images of those two on manpodcast.com. Freud is tall and you can see through him, whereas the Dr. Oedipus complex character is shorter, squatter, and more solid. They are opposites. They are. It's true. It is very true that they are both alike in their being made up of individual component parts and, and funny, funny, funny geometries. And with their little also brass, shiny brass head headdresses that must have been great to watch on stage, right? They would have caught light and flickered and animated them. My, my, my favorite are the stag's horns or uh, what do you call a stag's... Uh... Antlers. Antlers, right, which which would have caught light almost more than anything else because they're just like bright gold. Yes, absolutely, in those very carefully cut out curvilinear patterns. Yes, and did you notice that one of the stags has a gold circle in the center? And that's because he is the king, Dramo's alter ego. So the gold dot marks the one of the pair of stags that is related to the king. So Teuber Arp didn't only designed the puppets. She designed the sets and made drawings for the sets. I think there are drawings for the sets in the show. What was her relationship to the performance of King Stag? Well, I thank you, Tyler, for pointing out that she designed not just the puppets, but the stage sets, first of all, because although the puppets survived to come down to us through time, her stage sets did not. But as you said, she made colored pencil sketches for them. And there were also photographs taken in 1918 that documented the puppets in their stage set environment designed by Teuber Arp. And I've always thought that was really interesting because if you foreshadow what she goes on to do in creating these immersive abstract environments in Strasbourg and later, you could say in a certain way that that interest begins begins here in 1918 in Zurich with these stage sets that she created for her puppets to move against and around. And so she was commissioned by the director of the trade school where she taught design and embroidery to create the marionettes for this play, King Stag. And she made careful drawings for each and every one of them. The actual execution was done by a woodturner, a sculptor, who made the wooden forms, but the painting and polychrome decisions were all Sophie Teuber Arp's 
as were probably the costumes that they're dressed in and the fanciful patterns that cover some of their legs. And then again, these just remarkable facial features that makes each one so distinct. Maybe the most famous works that the Toiber are made are a series of heads, which uh, aren't much larger than the puppets for, for King Stag. Is there a relationship between Toiber Arp's heads, which she makes around 1920, and King Stag? Yes, yes, yes. And it, it's interesting because I think today I absolutely agree with you that Toiber Arp's so-called Dada heads, these small indeterminate objects are among her best-known works. But in fact, in her lifetime and in 18, 1918, what was truly celebrated were those King Stag puppets. Not necessarily by all the good citizens of Zurich, but among her avant-garde artists and poet peers, they put her squarely on the map, established her position within the Zurich Dada avant-garde. And I think that that had a tremendous impact on her self-image and her aspirations as an artist, and that the Dada heads most likely followed soon thereafter. And at least two of these wonderfully enigmatic objects were shown early on in 1918, soon after the first performances of the Kingstag puppet play, in an exhibition called Das Neue Leben, or the New Life Exhibitions, which sought to break down boundaries between fine art production and applied art production. And in the catalog for the first of these shows, there are several works by Sophie Teuber Arp, and among those are two that are labeled Study for a Marionette, and in parens behind one of them, Portrait of HHA. And that makes it seem very, very likely that the Dada head that we know of today, known as the portrait of Hans Arp, was in fact first presented to the public as a study for the, for a marionette. And that intimately links these works to her King Stag success. And when you're in the galleries at MoMA, it makes such sense when you begin to look at them. They're actually, because the Dada heads feature only heads. They're like busts on stands. In fact, the head part is much larger than that of any of the puppets. It's as though she zeroed in on that, that dimension of them. And early on in the literature, several of them were compared to hat stands. And I think it's just, we, there are photos of her posing with another one of them. So it's just so interesting to contextualize these mask-like three-dimensional objects that seem like part sculpture and part portrait bust and part something to play with in relation to this production of, of marionettes, which were all made to be moved about with and manipulated and all, all the rest, and that are also made from turned wood and that is polychromed or patterned. So there's just a, a context for the heads that the puppets provide that hasn't been talked a lot about prior till now. One of the ways we know one of Teuber Arp's heads best is through a very famous 1920 or so photograph in which she's apparently holding one of the heads and it's obscuring most of her face. Why was that picture taken and why is it full of kind of the overlapping or how is it full of the overlapping references we all love about Dada? So in 1920, Teuber Arp 
commissioned several photographs of her posing with one of her Dada heads. As you said, it happens to be the one that is very clearly labeled on the head as part of the composition with the word Dada and with the date 1920. And on the base of this particular Dada head, she writes more sheep includes, again, as part of the composition, her initials at the time, S-H-T, Sophie Henriette Teuber. She hadn't yet married Hans Arp. And she is asked by the Dada impresario Tristan Zara to submit a photograph of herself, of her head, he says, not body, for an anthology. Let me jump in for a second. He specifically says not her body. He says, head, not body, head, clear shot of your head, not body (laughs) for an anthology that he was planning to publish a very ambitious history of Dada. And he's inviting Toiber Arp as one of the participants in the movement to, to contribute to this publication, both with that clear photo of her head and with images of her works. And so this photograph which now gets reproduced everywhere when Sophie Teuber Arp's name is mentioned, shows her positioning her body behind her Dada head, behind the wooden polychromed object, per Tristan Zara's instructions, but she places her body, her actual face behind it. So you see her head, you see her artistically created head, but you see very little of her face because not only is it obscured by the Dada head, it's also she has her face covered with a very fashionable veil and she is wearing a, oh, what's the word? It's like a a melon hat, a very circular, close-fitting hat that almost seems to be capping the Dada head as much as it is her own. And so that's the picture that she sent to Zara to represent her head, (laughs) but not a face for the, because I think she's really funny. I think she has a sense of humor and of play and that that pervades the output from beginning to end, even when you're looking at the very abstract, non-figurative paintings and relief sculptures of the 1930s. A Dadaist being interested in play. Imagine that. Imagine that. Imagine (laughs) But it's not always the first thing that you think about when you're looking at, say, geometric abstractions of the 1930s. Once you begin to think of of them in relation to her background, I think it's pervasive. We haven't been talking about her biography a whole lot, which is totally fine. No, you know, that that seems almost anti-modernist or something. But in in the catalog, at least, and again, we're taping this just like 48 hours after the show is opened and I haven't seen it yet. In the catalog, at least, her move to Strasbourg is really important. So why did she move to Strasbourg and how does it, I don't know if the right phrase is, open up whole new ways she can do things and make things? That she can make things. I think for Sophie Toiber Arp, it's always a question of, what opportunities are there for me to make things, or as she would say, to make beautiful living things? So in 1926, she doesn't move to Strasbourg, but she begins to visit Strasbourg more frequently. And that is because her husband, Hans Arp, or Jean Arp, has moved there in order to secure his French citizenship. 
Sophie Torber, meanwhile, maintains her residence in Zurich because she continues to teach at the trade school there and is essentially supporting the couple at that time. But she does travel frequently to South Strasbourg, and there she begins to receive these design commissions for interior spaces, both private and public in the city. And this marks a huge turning point in her practice. You might say that the puppets mark one significant shift, and then these Strasbourg commissions that allow her to work for the first time on an architectural scale mark another. And I think the most famous or well-known of the commissions that she receives in Strasbourg is for a project known as the Aubet Entertainment Complex. And historians later refer to Teuber Arp's designs for these rooms as akin to the Sistine Chapel or Sistine Ceiling of abstraction. So she goes, so she's traveling a lot to Strasbourg and she gets to work in interiors and she begins to create murals and interior designs and stained glass windows all of which translate this grid structure of the textile on newly monumental and architectural scales. And I think it's interesting to think about how she's moving in a sense. We we subtitled the exhibition Living Abstraction to sort of hint at the different ways that her work and art and creative practice opens out onto, onto the world. But in Strasbourg is where she begins to make these immersive, abstract environments for people to move about in. And that is just something that she would have loved to have, I think, gone on to do for the rest of her career. And she did do a number of designs and furniture designs through the mid-30s. But after that, it seems that for whatever reasons, demand dried up and she focused more exclusively on her, her fine arts practice. So these designs that she's doing in Strasbourg, are they painted? Are they stained glass? Are they furniture? Are they all of the above? What is she? What's she making? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So she is making designs for mural paintings and environments. There are rooms in the Abed Entertainment Complex where she's creating designs for murals that are on the ceiling and on the walls that were applied with paint. In some areas, she has passages that in her designs, in the gouache designs for the projects, she uses metallic paint to indicate areas that in the real space of the Aubette were, be, were to be covered with silver leaf. And so you just have to imagine, or I like trying to imagine how these shimmering light reflective surfaces would have added to the dynamism of these large-scale abstract wall compositions. She also, in the Aubert Entertainment Complex, along with Arp and Theo van Duisburg, the Dutch style artists who had been invited to collaborate with them on the project, they designed a monumental two-story staircase. And there... You can see in the show a maquette for a stained glass window that went up two stories where really, again, that simple, simple coordinates of the grid now take on this monumental, really luminous, luminous form. And so her color, right, has a now a whole other aspect to it, bringing in the play of reflected light. 
there's a great photograph in the catalog, and I believe it's in the show, of a vestibule, so stairs and a railing, you know, going up from ground, ground to upwards. And there's a mural on part of the wall where the stairs meet meet the ground. And the interplay of shadow and light on the stairs is kind of extended onto the wall by the interplay of lighter colors and possibly like silver paint on the walls. And she's, you know, one one can imagine both disorientation and delight. <laughs> I mean, and that just this extraordinary animation, even when all we're looking at are, are still photo, I think is inherent to the way that she composes the, the murals that she's making in these spaces. Is she carrying out an architecture practice at the same time she's painting and making other works? No. Her first architectural project in the sense of designing a whole building as opposed to creating designs for pre-existing interiors, because even the Aubette, the shell of the Aubette was an 18th century building. So I always love to think, oh my goodness, you know, here inside are all these modernist abstractions, floor to ceiling, but the outside looked like an 18th century, rather forbidding building. The contrast must have been intense. Anyway, the first architecture, the first full design of a building that she does is a studio house for herself and ARP in a town called Clamart, just southwest of Paris. And the success of the Aubet Commission enabled them to be able to buy a little plot of land. And that's where she designed this studio house that followed sort of then progressive ideas about what constituted modern design and modern living. It's very simple. It's very geometric. It's made from local burl stone, I think, with windows that don't have lintels. And the interestingly, the majority of the sort of area of this house is given over to working spaces for her and for ARP. They each had a big studio, hers on the second floor, his on the first floor that overlooked the garden and everything else was sort of, you know, tucked, tucked toward, in fact, street side. And these are nearly overlapping, though. The the Abed work is 28 and the house is 29. Yes. I mean, this this interest in, in architectural spaces is late 20s on into the early 30s. And then she goes on to design a house for a couple in Basel and makes these very ambitious axonometric drawings of overlapping planes for those. But sadly, the couple in the end decided to go with a local, more conservative architect. So in that instance, we just have the plans of what Sophie Teuber wanted to do as an architect. So we have the plans, which are full of overlapping gridded planes, if you will, P-L-A-N-E-S, planes. And so one of her designs for a Berlin house seems to, I, I believe the owners of the house were Ingeborg and Wilhelm Bitter, he says in his best German, which isn't very good. <laughs> so she designs a kitchen cabinet for the Bitters. It sure seems like that kitchen cabinet is the house she designed in miniature. I mean, that she's carrying ideas, again, back to geometric abstraction. She's carrying ideas through everything, the same ideas about geometric abstraction through everything. 
Absolutely, Tyler. And it's really exciting when you are in the show because you just see so clearly the relationship between these different parts of the career and the different sizes and surfaces she's working across. But yes, that closet is comprised again of these modular units arrayed in a composition. And that is a consistent language from start to almost finish because i will continue to say almost finish oh we're going to get to the we're, we're going to we're going to get to the work at the end and and we'll talk about how different it is and perhaps why the, this photograph of the kitchen cabinet i mentioned is gridded and there are glass shelves and on the glass shelves are round dishes as we get into the 1930s toyber art starts painting a lot of abstractions built around circles and often with rectangles near them, adjacent to them, in a very kind of strict compositional way. Why does she return to painting? And is her painting as influenced by her architecture and design work as I'm making it sound? <laughs> yes. Well, all right. So let's see. The interesting thing that I have to say before I began research for this retrospective is that prior to to the late 20s, 2028, in fact, Sophie Teuber had made only two paintings on canvas. The majority of her production was on paper or on canvas weave embroideries or other, other types of supports and surfaces. But what happens in 1929, she settles permanently in France with ARP in the studio house she had designed and that was finished by that point. And for the first time in years, she's freed from her teaching obligations and she has time to devote to her fine arts practice. And that's when you begin to see her concentrate on paintings and then ultimately on polychrome, to use that word again, relief sculptures towards the end of that decade. And I think it's really, well, it's important to mention that this turn towards abstract painting happens within a certain context. And that context is Paris. And she's a member of several artists associations, one called Cercle et Carré, Circle and Square, and another one called Abstraction Création. And you were saying before, were you making too much of the sort of architectural echoes in her painting in the 30s. And I think I think not at all. It's interesting to me to look at her work post-Strasbourg post and her painting compositions in particular as both textile inflected, although the grid by this point goes underground. You know, it's almost, you, you sense it there as something that she's working against or playing off of, but the grounds, the backgrounds of her paintings are largely monochromatic. But anyway, both textile inflected and now newly architectural or spatially inflected. And this even plays out in certain ways to her use likely architectural drafting tools, compasses or straight edges in aids to her composition. And if you look at the way that she's dividing up the canvas surfaces with these diagonals or even when they're an empty, you know, not empty, a monochromatic field there's a different sense of space than there was with those more tightly constructed, literally textile gridded types of patterns and compositions. I wish we had 
time to look at every single painting in this part of the show because each one is, it's yes, it's the same hand and the same artist's eye and the same compositional issues, but every one is so dynamic and, and different. One way of pointing to that difference might be to talk briefly about paintings that, to give the title a plural, her gradations of the mid-1930s. They start with a form and then riff on it, and it's only upon close study that you realize how different they all are, right? Yes, absolutely right. Gradations. I, that was a, in French, it's échelonnement, and really hard to translate, but that that's what we chose. That's what we ended up settling on. And yes, so these are a series of works where she uses this truncated, almost amphora-like shape, as though it's sliced, sliced in half a little bit, stacked one on top of another. And as you said, Tyler, like the first impression might be that you're looking at identical compositions or even identical shapes, these sort of curving, sinuously curving motifs with a straight line across the lower edge. But the more you look at the stacks of them, you realize no two are ever alike. And that this back at the beginning, we were saying like she's nothing she makes is ever quite symmetrical. And that holds true even with these gradations as you watch forms teeter in a bit as though on the brink of some sort of incipient movement and yet resting there in perfect equipoise. And I, I think a lot, a lot of historians have used metaphors of dance or choreography even to describe the effect of Teuber Arp's compositions given her, her background. And I think you can't argue with that, but there is something really distinctive about how she manages to have things that are in equilibrium, but yet poised, as I said, on the on the brink of something shifting away. Well, let's push into the early 1940s. Teuber Arp dies young, unexpectedly, in 1943 in a wood-burning stove accident. She dies of carbon monoxide poisoning. But in the years before that, she's beginning to make abstract paintings and works on paper that are enormously more compositional or uh, enormously more obviously compositionally complicated than than works she had made before. Line is more complicated, color begins to bump into color, color overlaps other color which hadn't really happened much earlier. So these are works that are still carefully planned. I'm I guess I'm trying to avoid using the word rigid because they're not rigid, but they're certainly more chaotic. Why the shift? And at at the risk of asking, you know, my my usual question, does it have something to do with World War II? Yeah, time and its place and its circumstances. And I, so in the backstory for these drawings, it's mostly drawings, it's works on paper and colored pencil works on paper circling back to the very beginnings of her career, were made during years when Teuber Arp and Arp were living in the south of France during World War II. They felt that they had to leave their house in Clamart. They left in June 1940, just days before the Germans marched into Paris, and they fled like many artists and intellectuals at the time to the south of France, to the to Vichy France as sort of a safe zone for them. And they eventually settled in 
a small town on the Riviera called Grasse. And there, as you say, she begins to make these colored pencil line drawings that look like nothing that's come before them in the show. And the line she referred to these drawings, she used the word endless, endless lines. And and if you, one of my, well, I love all the essays in the catalog, but I think Jody Houtman's essay on the, these line drawings is particularly beautiful in terms of relating them to the time and circumstances in which they were made. But if you just try to follow with your eye one of Teuber Arp's curving undulating, cascading, colorful lines in these drawings. It just provokes such a sense of movement and I suppose of wandering. And although it's just pure speculation, it's hard not to think of them as a correlate or an echo of the nomadic circumstances of that particular time in her life. I think they also, right, they look so spontaneous. And, and when you get up close to them, you can realize she, she outlines her lines and she fills them in with hundreds of little tiny velvety strokes so that these lyrical drawings have this material density that is absolutely riveting. And I think I love our, our paper conservator, Annie Wilker, who is a really close partner on this project, has remarked on how for the first time here, the grid, that textile grid that has served Sophie Teuber Arp so well in the past, all traces of it vanish. And as though, right, that rational, orderly structure is no longer adequate to the chaos of her times. And I think that in a certain sense, that rings true in spirit, certainly not if in letter. And to your question about, right, could they have anything to do with World War II? I find it really interesting that Teuber Arp chooses to not only sign, which is unusual for her, but date, even more unusual, and record the location where a number of these works were made. So if you look at the inscriptions, usually in the lower right corner, it'll say, Sophie Teuber Arp, 1941 Gras, the town where they're living. And to me, that is a clear indication of, of she's memorializing their relation to this particular fraught time in her life. And the letters that she writes to her sister from Grasse, you know, they're filled with stories of having to wait for hours and hours online just to get food supplies and how the news of the war is always disturbing and the future is always certain. But she'll say something like, well, I waited for four hours online today to get, I don't know, a pat of butter. And then I went home and I made a drawing. And it's just this, like, you know, like this, I find it absolutely radical that the, the joy and the belief she still has in the power of the creative act sort of get her through these times of her extraordinary deprivation and hardship is incredibly moving. And it's incredible to think about these drawings as being the product of that particular set of circumstances that she found herself in. Hearing you describe the signature and the dating and the place that way reminds me that in the late 30s, Picasso's doing the same thing, 
only he's moving some of those places and dates closer to the center of the canvas. He's moving them out of the corners and foregrounding them physically within some works. My favorite comparison on this front, it's a Juan Miro one, because when he, during World War II, is making the constellations, that series of gouache that makes in 40 and 41, on the verso of each one, he writes the place and the exact date. I mean, he's even Sophie Toiber Arp of where it was made. And I've, I've thought for a long time, too, that there that, that has to be something to do with the with the war and the and the history and wanting the connection between these works to be there for all times. And I've been thinking, too, about, you know, what an act of how affirming it is to be making art at a time like because right to make art says, oh, you believe actually there'll be someone in the future to see it. And that is just. So let's let's wrap up with with this then. I as I flip through the catalog, which is a beautiful document. We get Teuber Arp as having a non-hierarchical, multidisciplinary practice that embraces non-traditional art media and expands upon them and extends them, which sounds like every new genre class taught in art schools for the last 30 years. (laughs) How and why did all that go away after Dada only to come back later? Or... Did it never go away, but the post-war commercial art market backgrounded it and art historians are maybe only now catching up? I think it never went away. I think Leo Steinberg once said, there's nothing new under the sun, only our focus of attention. And that now as we look around and we see how contemporary artists are working and certainly not within boundaries or set by any discipline, well, suddenly you can see, oh, goodness, Sophie Teuber Arp was there. She was there 100 years ago looking at how to create art, create art right in this absolutely open-ended, inclusive way. And it's just been such a thrill to be able to put all the pieces of the career together. And I do hope that the, the book stands as a real resource and reference for artists and for teachers and students and you know just lovers of art and beauty in general for a long time to come. Ann Umland, thank you. Thank you, Tyler. On view at the Getty Villa Museum through January 24th, 2022, Rubens, Picturing Antiquity, is the first exhibition to focus on Flemish master Peter Paul Rubens' fascination with the art and literature of ancient Greece and Rome. Named an essential art exhibition to see this fall by the Los Angeles Times, the show features thrilling drawings, oil sketches, and monumental paintings juxtaposed with rarely shown ancient objects, including exquisite gems owned by Rubens himself. Heroic nudes, fierce hunts, splendid military processions, and Bacchic celebrations illustrate Rubens' ability to translate an array of sources into new subjects. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents the exhibition Milton Avery, created by Edith Devaney and organized by the Royal Academy of Arts London in collaboration with the Modern and the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art. Avery is considered one of North America's greatest 20th century colorists. His career fell between the movements of the American Impressionists and the Abstract Expressionists, leaving him to forge a staunchly independent path. 
This comprehensive exhibition brings together a selection of approximately 70 paintings from the 1910s to the mid-1960s that are among his most celebrated. These works typically feature scenes of daily life, including portraits of loved ones and serene landscapes from his visits to Maine and Cape Cod. The color sensibility and balance that run throughout his work had a major influence on the next generation of artists. On view through January 30th in Fort Worth. Welcome back. Next up, remembering Jonathan Brown, one of the world's leading scholars of the art of Spain and the Spanish colonial world. He died on January 17th at the age of 82. In addition to teaching at New York University, and his students populate the field to a remarkable extent, Brown was the editor, author, or co-author of about 20 books on Spanish and Latin American art. He also curated exhibitions that explored the works of Murillo, Goya, Velazquez, Rubens, Van Dyck, Ribera, and plenty more. Brown joined me on the Modern Art Notes podcast twice, including in 2014, when he published a memoir titled In the Shadow of Velazquez, A Life in Art History. What follows is an excerpt from that conversation. We'll have a link to the full program on manpodcast.com. I listened to it this past week and was struck by all kinds of things, including Brown's interest in contemporary art and his take on how the Prado existed during the fascist era in Spain. This clip picks up with Brown and I discussing his parents, particularly his mother, Jean Brown, who is a pioneering collector of Fluxus art. Her collection is now at the Getty Research Institute. I was very lucky. I had the best parents in the world. And I don't think that there are too many people who can say that without some kind of clause of exception. But my parents really, although my father was hopeful I would take over his business when I told him I wanted to do Spanish art history, he shrugged and said, okay, because I was, I was a mediocre student in college until my last year. And, you know, I don't think he saw great potential in me. I mean, he loved me and he, whatever I wanted to do, he supported. But unfortunately, he died before I really began to produce my scholarly work. But it, it, to him, it, it was, it was just an extremely fortunate set of circumstances that they could tell I was serious, and I, I didn't even get fellowship help at Princeton for a couple of years because they didn't know whether I would turn into an art historian or not. The flame had been ignited, and I decided I just went my way. I remember, I remember getting an allowance from my father, even <laughs> even into my graduate work, until I got fellowship support. Of course, at that time, tuition was $1,000, so even if it's worth 10000 today, it was still, you know... He had other needs for the money. In, in the book, you mention how you, you and your family were regular museum visitors. Springfield, Mass., is about an hour from Worcester, and there are, are quite a number of Spanish paintings in Worcester, and, and the museum has had them since the 1920s, a Cano, a Maria, a Ribera, a Ribera astronomer. Do you remember seeing them, or, or remember, was that all later? I remember, I remember being there, but I don't remember... But one of the themes of of the book is the difficulties in studying Spanish art in the post-Franco era. And I mean the pre-Franco, the Franco era, sorry. In the Franco era, and the general disdain of Franco in liberal but also in governmental circles was very strong until the government bailed him out in 19... our, Our government bailed him out in 1953. 
So what had happened was the entire area of European art history just fell asleep. There was I was going to put this in my book, but the kind of street legend. Is that what they call them? Street legends? Yeah, urban myths, or yeah. Urban myths, that's the word I'm looking for. There was an urban myth. Uh, Panofsky's work were kept under lock and key. Instituto Velasquez, the major center for advanced research in art. You could only have access to Panofsky's work by asking the director for a key to open the, the cupboard where they were kept. I didn't put that in the book because there was no no way in verifying it. <laughs> but, I, but I've spoken over the years to several Spanish colleagues, and finally they said, look, this is probably just a token of the way in which art history was managed in Spain. That is a... The, the impact of, of Franco is a theme that runs through the book. and, and I, don't, I don't think very, very many Americans... You know, my age and from the United States certainly had the experience of going to Spain. Spain was just off the cultural map because of the political situation. There is a picture of you in the book, actually, that kind of makes that point. I think it's you in a class in 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 Madrid in the late 50s, and, and you kind of look like the only American. Although you do, because of the lighting of the picture, kind of have the Habsburg jaw. <laughs> I've often been told that... <laughs> One of the anecdotes you tell in the book to kind of get over the idea of, of Franco's impact on, on many things is, is your first experience of lighting at the Prado and, and kind of how the place was treated by Spain's government and how that lighting made an impact on you. Yeah, well, I would first say that the lighting was darkness. Right. <laughs> because there was no or very little artificial light. So the galleries were illuminated by the sun, and that's... I discovered that if you followed the course of the sun, you could always have decent lighting conditions to see the paintings. But the Prado, as I say in the book, the Prado at that time was just a warehouse for great European, great European paintings. They had no staff. They had no programs. The pictures never moved. They were seldom given conservation treatment. The government was just not interested in the visual arts at all, the same attitudes. Everything was loaded down with fascist propaganda. So you either played the game or you didn't get any money. And Prado was the Prado. It was a huge collection. Nobody, Everybody recognized its value, but nobody understood its purpose. And so it just sat there, which it was, the, in a certain sense, it was like the Frick collection blown up 10 times. It had, if not the intimacy of the Frick, it certainly had the solitude of the Frick at, at that time in the 50s and 60s. And it was, you know, it was a, just a fantastic experience to be in that in galleries all by yourself. I think that that may be an experience that not too many Americans have, is to be in a room with nothing but the best Titians, first of all, isn't possible in the United States. But it made such an impact, the idea that it was you and the pictures, and you could enter into the pictures in a way that now with the crowds is just impossible to do. Another anecdote you used to kind of get across the idea of kind of what a what a lonely place Spanish art history was in the 1960s was is, is your citing of Kenneth Clark's famed civilization television series, which conducts in your telling and 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 quoting kind of a near philistine ish drive by of Spanish culture. 
Was that a specific impetus to you, something you noticed at the time in 1969 or 1970, or did you become aware of it later in, in kind of that nodding way, oh, yes? I think the moment I began to be seriously engaged with Spanish art of the Golden, of the golden Age, there was, it was a, something you had to do on your own. There wasn't a lot of inspiration or even tolerance of it. It was, as I say later on, the Iberian Peninsula seemed to be kind of unfortunate appendage to Western Europe sticking out into the Atlantic. I think Clark was reiterating what's known as the Black Legend, which was invented by an enemy of Philip II in the later 16th century, which depicted Spain as a bigoted, narrow-minded, cruel country, but in much the same terms that countries today look at the United States with a general negative mindset. And I think that Clark is a significant figure because the success of that series, that telephone, uh, tele television series, was really quite quite extraordinary. So I wanted to draw attention to the fact that there was a strongly negative understand, not understand, strongly negative feeling about Spanish culture in general, and that there'd be no person to for the, no no better personification of this attitude than those few lines from Clark's book. It's called The History of Civilization, and he explains why he leaves Spain out of it. I mean, those are strong words, and for me, fighting words. Virtually every chapter of, of the book addresses and includes the great Velasquez Las Meninas. And, and as a result, one of the things I kept thinking about was how, you know, today we think of, of Las Meninas as, as, as just the painting, um, as, as, as maybe the greatest painting ever made. And your, your focus on Franco and, and the Clark anecdote and, and, and the distance Spanish art history had from kind of the rest of European art history made me wonder if you've examined whether Las Meninas has always been considered a painting apart, a special thing that even as Spanish art history wasn't much studied, Las Meninas was still recognized as the great thing it was, or if the paintings, or, or if the, the reception of the painting has, has really evolved over the last 40 years. I, I would first of all agree with you that it's the greatest painting ever done. I've looked at it maybe a thousand times, maybe more. And it's to me, it's a refreshing experience. But to get to the point where I am, you've got you've got to read a lot of articles, many seriously misdirected. And I use an anecdote which I drew from a radio program I happened to hear on PBS or whatever the station is called, where a rock musician is being interviewed and he's asked what does he intend a song of his to, to mean? And he said, everybody takes away something different from it. And that really does summarize it because it's a picture because of its really super, superlative quality and the depth of thought and execution and the ingeniousness of the composition. It seems to invite, indeed, compel people to try to figure out exactly what's going on. And what I try to do and I myself have written one of the standard interpretations of Las Meninas, which I now finally understand is not right. And so I've gone to almost the other extreme in discussing and analyzing the picture in, in, in the book. 
And what I've tried to do is just look at the painting as a painting and line it up in the genealogy of Western European painting. And I've discovered that you know, right from the first, it was thought of by, as a pictorial masterpiece unlike any other. And that was um, Luca Giordano's opinion, who was the court painter in Spain from 1792 to, sorry, uh, 1692 to 1702. And so he was looking at it through the eyes of an artist, a highly sophisticated artist. And his reaction is reported by somebody who was present. And he said, at first, Giordano said nothing. And then he looked and turned toward the king who was accompanying this visit to Las Meninas. This is the this is the theology of painting, by which he meant that his theology was the highest branch of knowledge. So this painting was the highest branch of the highest exemplar of painting. I think that's praise enough. I'm not tempted to get into the intricacies intricacies of it. What I try to try to do now is just to get people to look at it for a long period of time. That, of course, is no easy thing to do, given the crowd. I you know, had the good luck to see it before the crowds, and then in a big Velasquez exhibition of, I think, 1999, I was allowed into the exhibition by myself, thanks to the curator. And I spent a couple of hours just wandering through and enjoying the pictures and enriching my knowledge of the pictures. But it, it has this quality of a timeless masterpiece, and I think the reason it does is because of the way that it's executed. At that time, high-finish paintings, enamel-like surfaces, were more or less the technique that was used. And here, Velasquez, in a way, deconstructs this whole manner of painting and paints by blotches, as one writer was later to say. So I thought, well, why not just take it added to word and say let's just enjoy this as the great picture that it is and not worry about what it means because what it means is what it is so during the franco era was it as appreciated and considered as it is now it was curiously enough it was in a room by itself that you saw upon entering the room and on the left hand side was a plaque engraved in granite saying this is the maximum expression of pictorial art and then there was a min there was a win I'm sorry a mirror that was placed opposite the picture, which was weird because there was there was the picture and here was this mirror reflection and I don't know what quite was intended by it, except that the mirror reflection reduced the scale of the figures more or less to the scale of the viewers, so they saw it as great great work of illusionistic art, and that's not wrong it's just not sufficient. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.